You can't count that high. It's not fair. That wasn't in the manual. <laughs> All right. They're hey, going to wonder what we're doing. You press record. It's okay. They can wonder. It's part of the allure, the mystique, the ambiance. All right. So welcome back. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we get to introduce you to the one, the only, the phenom writer, Mr. Daniel Schwabauer. And did I get it anywhere close? to write this time you did it perfectly it was great jr thank Aww. you i'm gonna put that in my calendar Seska, remember <laughs> I, was last perfect. Time. I was perfect to just write that down yeah all right <laughs> don't let it go to your head i mean we're just the well, too late of the interview so <laughs> <laughs> so the second part of the introduction dear listener is how we first met them so i shall go first because i know what Seska's answer is going to be and so uh, I found Daniel through uh, the story bundle. I found out we were both going to be in the same one together. So I decided to arrange a few interviews. And he seems like a lot of fun. So far in the pre-show, he's been making fun of me with Saska. So we know he's a keeper. If people are nice to me, I start thinking they're plotting on me. It's an, You know, JR, as much as I love you, it's low-hanging fruit and an easy target. That <laughs> so how did you find him? Well, you're, next you're going to tell me, like, you know, you were plotting against me when I wasn't here and... I clicked, you said, click on this link. I clicked on this link and oh, lo and behold, there is a stream yard. <laughs> All right. So now you get to ask him the important question, the religion question, and we get to see if he gets to stick around. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Uh, Star Wars all the way. I mean, uh, Firefly is fun, but um, short. And Star Wars is really like the childhood thing. I remember watching it in... When it came out, you know, in theaters, my dad took me to it and Aww. I saw it over and over again that summer. And so it was, it was, it was one, it wasn't the first thing that pulled me into science fiction, but it was kind of the year after I got pulled in and I just <laughs> more, more emotional connection to it, you know. I can understand that. Now, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter? Lord of the Rings. Um, but it, it's a that's a hard question to answer because I don't return to Lord of the Rings as much as I do Harry Potter simply because I think Jim Dale's audiobooks are fantastic. I mean, so when I go on road trips, I will sometimes re-listen to the to the Harry Potter books. But but Lord of the Rings to me is just, I mean, it's groundbreaking. It's brilliant. There's a lot to like about it, but I don't go back and reread it frequently. It is foundational. Yeah. So now, since you mentioned your your love, which one is was your first love? Science fiction or fantasy? Mm -hmm. Science fiction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what's your earliest memory of science fiction? Well, when I was uh, between fifth and sixth grade, my I, I had I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a KOA in a camper. And it was because my dad was a, he was a project manager. He was an architect mm -hmm. and he built, if you don't know if you're familiar with Kansas city, he built crown center in Kansas city oh, wow. and he was asked to build the Williams center in Tulsa. And so, um, you know, I knew nothing about any of this. I was, you know, just <laughs> leaving fifth grade. And he said, well, I, you know, I, I don't want to be down there the whole time without my family. So, uh, he got this little enclosed camper and right before we left, I visited some friends 
and was in their basement library and I found Edgar Rice Burroughs, A Princess of Mars. Oh, wow. I, I was like pulled into this not really great story, but but wonderful story at the same time. I'd never experienced science fiction before. And they noticed how much I liked it. And they basically sent me with a grocery bag full of books by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And so we landed, I, I call it my summer in Mars because we landed at this KOA, which was like, you know, red dust. It was, a, it was like 110 degrees the whole summer. And so I had my own little yeah it was it was we were even had a little like hard shell habitat with a with a little like circular window looking out over canals and i'm not, I'm not kidding so i mean i sat in the air conditioning of this place for three months and and went through barsoom and and pellucidar and i mean all of the i think ed grice burroughs only wrote one novel but he just he changed the names of different things in it but i loved it and uh and so science fiction was that was the thing that really pulled me into sci into sci-fi and this may be too long of a story, but I happened to go into sixth grade. I, I lucked into one of the best teachers in the universe. She was uh, one of the first, I think she was the first African-American teacher in Johnson County, Kansas. Oh, wow. And everybody in the school, all the kids fell in love with her. Um, but she, what she did was she noticed your tendencies and she noticed that I was reading geeky novels. I was reading day of the giants by Lester Del Rey. That year was when I, when I first read in sixth grade, I read Lord of the Rings for the first time in the Chronicles of Narnia. And she asked me to teach her to play chess. And uh, she said she'd always wanted to learn. And because I, I would rather read than go outside and play on the swings. We played chess and, and she read the books that I was reading and talked to me about it all year long instead of like grading papers and stuff. I think she was a saint, honestly. Um, but she made me believe I could be a writer. And um, the fact that a, an adult took science fiction seriously and wanted to talk to me about it. And I mean, I was just a dumb kid. You know, I was in sixth grade. I didn't know. I just wanted to go to different worlds. And um, those those books really let me do that. So that's my long answer. That's what pulled me into science fiction. <laughs> so what is it about that the speculative fiction that you love specifically? Is there any one aspect to it that you love the most? Well, um, I, what I love about science fiction in particular, I mean, I love, I love fantasy too, but it's not on the same level for me. And in part, because I think for me, fantasy feels often more derivative and that's not necessarily bad. And it's, it's also probably because I don't read it as much and maybe I've picked the wrong things. But I like the exploration of ideas through story immersion. Really great science fiction to me will help you to kind of walk through an idea that you can't get in reality, but that can introduce you to the, the possibility. Like it expands your view of what can, what can be. It, mm -hmm. it, it helps you to think differently and um, kind of, you know, broaden your imagination, I guess. So I love that. Um, I, I love stories that do that in particular and are not just, there's nothing wrong with escapist fiction. I like escapist fiction too, but to me, the highest level of, of thing is where, where someone makes me see reality differently. You know, when I go, Oh, I've been, I've only been looking at it from the West and they've picked me up and dropped me on the other side of it. And I'm looking at it from the East now. And it looks a little different over here. I really love it when someone can do that for me. So science fiction does it really well. And fantasy does sometimes. That's a good answer. 
So how did your love of speculative fiction translate into you writing stories in this wild uh, world of, of imagination? Well, um, I, in part because of Miss Henry in the sixth grade, who made me think I could be a writer, I just, I kept writing through, you know, junior high and high school, and I kept reading stuff, and, and I got to a point where I, I was like, the, the only thing I want to do is write, and I don't know where to go to learn to do this, but I guess you go to college. So I went to college, I got a master's degree in creative writing from the University of Kansas, and I stumbled upon a class my first year there by Jim Gunn, and because he taught at KU, started the Center for the Exploration of, or Center for the Study of Science Fiction um, at Kansas University, which nobody knew about at the time. And um, I, what I noticed was that he taught, science, he's taught story very differently than anybody else. When I was in college studying creative writing, what we learned was word photography. We learned how to make things sound sort of pretty and interesting, but we never talked about character arcs or, uh, you know, story structure. We never talked about any of that stuff. Um, but Jim Gunn did. And unfortunately, everybody else, it, for, what my perspective was as a student, that all the other people kind of looked down on science fiction. I had another professor tell me, you could, he took, she told the whole class, you can write about anything you want as long as it's not that science fiction and fantasy crap. And I was like, but that's what I want to write. <laughs> so I don't I like of, her. <laughs> <laughs> she was a good teacher. She just, they had a bias. And it took me a while when I actually getting out of college to realize that I had absorbed some of the literary pretentiousness of, of my education. And I'd missed out on a lot. And I, I had to kind of I had to accept the reality that I had not gotten from college what I thought I was going to get. And then I actually graduated with a, a master's degree in creative writing and could not define for you what a story was. And that was a really weird wake up call to me. I was, I was like, Hmm, I, I need, I need a different kind of education here. So that's kind of a, another long story in answer to your question, but, but Jim Gunn and he passed away just a few months ago. Um, really kept feeding me uh, my interest in story and kind of, he didn't ever tell me what to do really, but he kind of made me, th made me think in ways that I think have helped me as a writer. And so I owe a lot to him too, honestly. Um, and I, I get to thank him at the, at the uh, 2017 world con. Um, he showed up the last day and I got, I mean, I don't know what he was, 90, five at the time or something. And, and I got to say, Hey, you know, I, I, I didn't express this enough back in the early nineties, but thank you. You know, so he, that he, I would say it was Jim Gunn's influence that, um, kind of shoveled me that direction. And then I, I kept writing it in 1997. I sold my first short story to tailbones magazine. And that was my, my launch into the genre, I guess. Nice. So many authors let their real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments for you? Yeah. Okay. So I guess we have enough time for this. Can I tell we you do. Two, two stories? Okay. One, when I sold that short story, um, it was called Ola. It got a few 
recommendations for a Nebula Award. And the the Nebulas that year were in Kansas City. And so I didn't have any money, but it's like, it's here, I need to go to this. And I really wanted to connect with a famous writer. And um, like kind of just connect oh, around this idea for a novel that I had. So I went to the Nebulas and I was waiting for the big awards thing to start. And I went to one of the rooms where everybody's you know, having a party. There were probably 30 or 40 people in the room and the guy was there and nobody's talking to him. And I was, I was pretty, I'm pretty introverted. You know, I, I don't normally just go up and I'm happy ha hanging out in the corner by myself. But um, I walked up to famous author and I said, Hey, famous author, I'm, I'm Dan Schwabauer. It's nice to meet you. I just want to tell you, I really loved your novel X. I'm not going to say his name because I think he was drunk, but he, uh, he looked at me, looked at my hand and he went, and he turned around and walked away and it coincided with everybody getting really quiet. And so I like looked around, I've got my hand sticking out and everybody's looking at me like, Oh wow, <laughs> that's kind of painful. And, um, so I can, okay, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I walked out of the room. I went down to the bar. I sat down and, uh, the guy next to me said, so are you one of these writers? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I thought I was till about 10 minutes ago. And he said, well, hey, my name is Kevin Anderson. Nice to meet you. And Kevin Anderson spent the next hour talking to me about writing. And it was it was uh, a memorable moment because he said, um, and I've talked to him since, and he doesn't remember this, but I remember it vividly because he said, Dan, you're, a, and I, this isn't true, but this is what he said. <laughs> he said, you're a better writer than I am. And I can tell you that because everybody's a better writer than I am. I'm just more persistent than everybody else. He said, I, I, I think it's okay. I've heard him tell this story public, like this part of it publicly that he had, he had uh, over 700 rejection letters before he sold his first story to, to a magazine that paid in copies. I think I'm telling that story correctly. Um, but just the humility and the willingness to talk to somebody that couldn't do anything for him um, made me think, okay, so not, not everybody in this business is a jerk. You know, this, this guy was really helpful. The other thing, um, that was maybe more specific towards military sci-fi, um, is I have, I had an uncle who was a veteran of the Vietnam war and uncle Raj and Roger was a great guy. He just had this to me kind of odd, um, aversion to guns. So as a kid, when, when we would play like army or squirt guns or something, he would not let my cousins have guns. And I just didn't understand. I was like, what is, what's up with, with uncle Raj? You know, I didn't, I didn't get it. When my grandmother died and, and Roger had already passed away. My grandmother died. My dad, who's the oldest son, um, was the executor of their, of, of my grandparents' estate. Um, he got the will, found out there was a safe deposit box got the safe deposit box. I come home from college and my dad has the safe deposit box open. And he says, Dan, you need to come here and look at this. And it is um, a series of letters from my uncle who was, he had joined the Marine Corps because he thought he was going to be drafted. And they told him apparently that if he volunteered, you know, if he willingly signed up before the draft, that he'd kind of choose some assignments. He was a great trombone player and he thought he was going to be in the Marine band. And they made him a forward observer in Vietnam. Um, so my uncle, instead of letting my grandmother know what was going on, he wrote letters to her about the great time he was having in Hawaii. And then he shipped them to a friend in Hawaii. And so they would have the postal stamp marked Hawaii going back to my grandmother. 
So those letters were in the safe deposit box, along with a magazine um, that had a story about the combat going on in Vietnam and a picture of my uncle in combat. And along with that was a silver star and the citation for the silver star, what, what he had done. So completely changed my perspective on Uncle Roger being a little weird, you know. Um, and and it was such an interesting story of the the man behind the mask in a way. Not that he intentionally wore masks, but it's just there's so much more there that made me think this is this is probably true a million times over. You know, there's another story behind that that if I could get at that and tell stories like that that would help people to see things a little bit differently. Um, maybe it would be worth writing, doing it as science fiction. Yeah, that's the one thing that irks me when you read military fiction is when they have them go these places and do these things and it's fun to read about, but then there's no consequences for it. Like they, mm -hmm. it doesn't affect them. Yeah. That's where they lose you. Cause quite frankly, if you can kill people and not feel something, you're a sociopath. Yeah. And it's one of the things, there are some universes I stopped reading because it was just like, no. So that's yeah. it's an interesting story. We appreciate your sharing it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a super powerful story. It's hard to really go on past that. So um, I should have saved that one for last, I guess. No, 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 no you're fine. You're fine. No, you're fine. It, that is really an awesome story. Um, and I think he really, he really loved both his country and his, and his family. Um, but transitioning from that into some fandom stuff, have you had any cool fan art or cosplay done of your stuff? Well, I, the, the books that got the most traction, like initially when I wrote were fantasy, they're anthropomorphic fantasy, they're mid-grade novels, and they were carried pretty widely by, by school libraries. So I have seen, I have had some really fun situations where uh, the main character of the Legends of Tiranor is this mouse named Jared. And so I've had kids dress up as Jared. I've had them, you know, like, like make like replicas out of clay or knit replica Jareds with the, you know, the characteristics, the way I described Jared. Um, I've had students come up to me and, and recite the, the Pro Tamir's prophecy out of the beginning of the books that each one of them has a, like a poem type thing and they'll have that memorized and they'll just come up to me and I'm like, I'll turn around and there's a, you know, an eight year old and he's <laughs> like recite back the poem to me. It's that part's kind of cool. So um, may maybe not uh, in the science fiction realm, but um, I do like kids. So that's, that's a different kind of kick, I guess. You're muted. Sorry, that was awesome and so cool. But have you had anyone ask for your autograph out in public, away from a book signing or convention? You know, not very often, but I did. I, I have had it a few times. One of them, I was, I was standing in line at a wedding, waiting to get some food. And someone came up to me. I have no idea who it was. And they said, are you Dan Schwaber? Did you write Run the Brave? And I said, yes. <laughs> like, will you sign my book? Uh, sure. And they had yeah. it there? Yeah, it was it was very unexpected. I think I had it in the car or something, and they ended up going back and getting it. <laughs> uh, so, what is your weirdest or funniest story about a fan interaction? Keeping in mind, this is a family friendly show, mostly. <laughs> we do try. Most, mostly family. 
family friendly. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if this is super weird. I, I had a teacher. Um, I think it was a fifth grade teacher when Run the Brave came out. She emailed me and and or through the through the publisher and said, um, "Hey, is there any chance you could respond?" To, I just that this kid who really likes your book and he's doing his author, his like book report on you as the author. It's the end of the year report. And it's his birthday. He's so excited um, that we're doing this little birthday party for him in class. And he, he wants to do it about your book. So they want to theme it around this book. And they said, could you send him an email? And I said, sure. But I noticed it was, it, it came from what looked like a local place. And I, so I, when I responded, I said, where, where is your school located? And she said, well, it's Gardner, Kansas, which is 15 minutes from my house. And we happened to be going that direction anyway on that particular day. So I got to, I said, what if I just stopped by? And she was like, you're kidding. <laughs> like, you, you live like right here in Kansas City. So I walked into the classroom and I mean, I've done a bunch of like teaching things. I've been in classrooms. I've had been, I've been asked to speak to students before. But this one was so unique because it was just one, it was really for one student, but the look on his face and not just his face, but the, the, I don't think I've ever seen a classroom where all the other kids were excited for one student. That's awesome. Everybody was happy for him. Like his joy just kind of spilled out onto everybody. And my wife was actually with me and we walked out of, out of the school and she said something along the lines of, now I know why you've been writing all these years. <laughs> that that was cool. And I was like, yeah, I didn't know that was going to happen, but it's worth it. Like all those, all the hours of typing, you know, kind of, I think it, I think it's worth it for that. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing story. It is. So th this is the part of the interview where you get to tell us the highlights reel of everything you've written. So can you, can you tell us uh, <laughs> so what, sort of what you've put out into the ethos? Well, I like to say I've been a jack of all trades <laughs> and the, uh, I don't, you know, I think the original saying was jack of all trades and master of one. Um, I don't know if I call myself a master of, of the novel. That's really the thing that I'm most excited about and that I have done the most. Um, other than the legends of Tiranor, I've done, I've written, um, like I, I did some journalism for a newspaper for two and a half years. I did ghostwriting for, um, uh, best-selling author. I did radio scripts. I've done some for a PBS animated series. I did some scripting for like telescripting. I've done um, radio, um, just anything that would pay me a buck. <laughs> I wanted to pay, I wanted to provide for my family. So uh, actually I spent a while rewriting government brochures to make them more interesting and I don't know Whoa. if it compares with serving in the military, but if you want to to find something that will make you hate bureaucracy, I suggest uh, reading and rewriting government brochures. Um, it, it's it's a challenge to make them interesting. <laughs> I and, believe and nobody it. wants to read any of them <laughs> that I rewrote. But uh, yeah, that's the thing. And then, of course, the the book that's coming out to it already came out in March, but that's going to be in the story bundle is, uh, is an adult military sci-fi called operation Grendel. 
So that's what we brought you on to talk about today. So what is the premise for this universe? How'd you come up with the idea? Was it psychedelics, a Ouija board, overindulging in um, bad Kansas barbecue? <laughs> there is no such thing as bad Kansas barbecue. But that's a great question. Um, actually, that's not true. There is some bad barbecue here. There's a lot of great barbecue. Um, so I, I, sometimes I think I, really great ideas are like a, a Venn diagram of two different things. In 2014 to 2017, I, I really spent three years studying the era of yellow journalism. I was producing a, a program for high school students called Byline that takes them, it really teaches journalism, but it does so by taking them into the past and having them kind of role play as 1930s era cub reporters. And so it meant that I, I did a ton of reading of journalism from about 1870 to 1923. And in doing that, I was like, I was so struck by the similarities of what happened to American newspapers and what I, what I think I'm seeing with current journalism. I could be wrong about it, but it just, it struck me as maybe these things move in cycles and um, it, it really opened up a, a kind of fascination with propaganda and with psychological warfare and with self-deception. And uh, I'm, I don't claim to be an expert on any of these things. It's just that three years of looking at what, what was done and the development. Um, I'm not an expert in this, but as I understand it, uh, propaganda, modern propaganda developed during World War I, the World War I time period. And in America, it was the Committee for Public Information, which was a government, um, so sort of a ministry of propaganda. And the guy who ran it was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. His name is Edward Bernays. And when, fortunately, our government, at, when World War I ended, said this is too, we, we have a little too much power to have this. So they disbanded the Committee for Public Information. But all the, all the guys that had been trained went looking for jobs. And what happened was corporations said, hey, come work for us. And that was the advent of modern commercial propaganda. So that's the first thing, uh, was just that fascination with that. And then the second thing was I started going down a, a weird rabbit hole of quantum um, artificial quantum computing and artificial intelligence. And I was, I was listening to podcasts of things that I, I, I would say are very much in that crossing the line into slightly kooky, but are interesting story fodder, you know, um, things that are, um, well, like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really know much about quantum computing until I started looking into this. And I had the idea, what if, what if we wired these really powerful computers, we can compress them enough, condense them enough to where we can just hardwire them to people's brains. And what would, what would they do? And so I started watching Elon Musk and some of the things he was saying about artificial intelligence and how it's going to take over and do everything better than we can do in the next 35 to 50 years. And um, in thinking about that, I thought, okay, well, how is that going to make propaganda and psychological warfare even creepier than it already is? So that was the, the story idea. What if, what if uh, artificial intelligence really does become vastly more intelligent than we think. And, and so in 2017, when I, when I was at the Hugo's the, in Kansas City, I, I went to a panel on artificial intelligence and 
really smart people. I don't claim to be as smart as these people, but they were talking about what it means for something to be intelligent. And the example one of the panelists used was um, you, you measure, you can tell something's intelligent when it demonstrates the ability to predict behavior and then deceive based on that behavior. So you can tell a monkey is, is intelligent because when a bigger monkey comes in the cage, it hides the banana. Okay, so that was his premise. And he said, so what we need to do with these incredibly powerful, smarter than, than we are AIs is we need to teach them to lie to us. And I was like, danger, Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> I've read, I've science, read fiction. science fiction. No, we don't. No teaching it to lie. Bad but, idea. But it was, it was said, I think, seriously. And it made me think, yeah, we, probably any, any idea that's really bad, someone will try. And what would this look like? And of course, to, to me, that's that's the launch point of a story then. Uh, because, okay, now they're lying to us. They're hardwired to our brains. And what does that mean in the future, projecting it out, you know, in terms of like conflict in a military, uh, in military sci-fi, you need conflict. You need, you need clashing civilizations or, or, you know, governments or armies or something. And so what are they going to clash over? And they're going to clash over this thing of, how much autonomy do we have? How much access do we give the AIs? Because if they're that smart um, and they're that, they're, they'll be able to predict our behavior and they'll be able to deceive us. So then I started really getting fascinated with how would they deceive us? What kinds of deception would they use? And and uh, honestly, um, I you know I've never served in the military, and I've wanted to write military science fiction for a long time but I've always felt that I couldn't do it honestly because there's just too much about, I assume, military life that I would get wrong. And I don't mean like ranks and, you know, gun type things. I mean, I mean like Star Wars. Sorry if I'm going to offend people, but the some of the officers that they have as officers, I just think, I would never follow that person. <laughs> I don't believe that they've, I don't believe that there's a, there's any military like cell in their body, you know? Um, and I didn't want to, I did not want to produce something like that. However, I, I landed on, well, I do know something about journalism. What if my story were about a journalist who is impersonating an officer with the help of an artificial intelligence? Um, that's a story I could tell authentically because in order to do it, I'd have to impersonate someone, right? I'd have to be pretending, and maybe military people would say, oh, this, this person's impersonating someone. They're getting some things wrong. It could be the excuse I needed for the voice. That is a very different perspective. I like it. <laughs> is this out in audiobook? Because now I'm going to have to go listen to it. It is not yet out in audiobook. I don't know if it will or not. It's The, the publisher has not told me. Jared's right. just going to have to find somebody to read it to him at night. <laughs> I think he just volunteered. All right. So, no, uh, no, I sleep. Before we, uh, we dig into the story itself, uh, deeper than you already have, uh, I want to share this picture of the cover for you. And can you tell us the story of um, how you got this art? Because it's it's definitely catches your attention. Yeah, I love the cover. I don't always love the cover of books, but that one, uh, that was... Kirk DuPont is a fantastic book designer, um, dog ear design 
Enclave, the, the publisher hired Kirk. I, I know him. Um, I've known him for a few years, but I was thrilled when I found out they were hiring Kirk to do it. And fortunately, the publisher asked me, you know, is there what what kinds of things could you see on the on the cover? And that particular image, although I mean, the spaceship wasn't there, obviously, um, when I was when I was a young man in 1990, I went with a friend to the Ashil Triangle in the jungle mountain jungles of Guatemala. And um, I know it's a, it's <laughs> it's so strange because Operation Grendel does have a kind of journey to it. And in some ways it's based on the setting that I experienced in going uh, to this really remote place. We, we flew in in a Piper Cub, landed literally on a like a gravel strip that went straight up the side of a mountain. I couldn't believe it when we flew there. I was like, we're landing there. And he's like, yeah, you land going up and you take off going down. And that was a coffee plantation that was almost 12 miles from Chell, which was the village we were going to. And we had the afternoon to get there in the mountains. And I was in much better shape than I'm in now, but I remember thinking we're not going to make it. And it was because it was 1990. I know this is a little bit of a diversion, but, but Guatemala had just undergone this communist, like the communist insurgents were in the jungle. And, and they, they told uh, Kevin that I was with told me, if we don't get there before sunset, we're sleeping in the jungle because there are communist guerrillas out here and they shoot down into the village. And if you're not inside, the militia for the village will not let you in. You have to be there before sundown. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a little aspect of this story, totally unrelated to the cover. I've never told this story before, um, but <laughs> when we were walking, we were probably seven miles. We we're tired, you know. You're walking up and down. It's exhausting, you know. Uh, and we stopped to take a little break, and we hear this. Like, I don't know what, how to make the noise, but like this padding, like this strange noise coming through. Like, is it a puma? What is it? You know, something's coming towards us. And and it's just dark jungle leaves and things. And it, it, it splits. And there's this like 80-year-old woman. And she's dressed. She's like a descendant. It's Mayan look, you know. Um, uh, uh, I don't, it's, she was an Ashil Indian is what she was. And she she had a, she was probably, 40 years old, but, but the rough living had aged her. She had a baby on a sling in front of her and a baby on a sling in back of her. And she had a full five gallon bucket balanced on her head and she was barefoot. And she went past us on the trail, stopped, looked at, looked at us and started laughing. <laughs> like she's barefoot. She's carrying two kids and a five gallon bucket of water on her head and she's outpacing us. This is like in my, I'm like 20 something, you know? Um, anyway, we made it in time and, uh, there, there were a lot of things along the way, including what is actually in this jungle and oh, are we, are we in, in time that, that are just really vivid yeah. memories for me that I pulled from in trying to get across, uh, just some of the, I guess, ambiance of the, of the journey of the story. So I sent the, I sent photos. I went looking through my uh, storage bins and I found some of my photos taken on a disposable camera and I uh, scanned them and sent them to Kirk. And I said, Hey, what about this? And um, that's the image that he came up with. Nice. So, so is the name operation Grendel anyway, tied to the Beowulf Grendel? It, it's, 
Not exactly. I, um, Grendel in the book is a, it's a reference to the Grand Alliance. So it's the, like the sort of good side, the, the colonial Marines call them, they call them Grendels because Grand Alliance, Grendel. It's just, it's a way of kind of villainizing the enemy. Um, but I did take a little bit of the structure from, I read Beowulf, I think three times before writing this and went through and, and looked at the structure of the story and thought I can use some of the structural elements of Beowulf just as a way as markers, I guess, for the, for the journey. Nice. So if you were to do a 30 second elevator pitch for this book, what would it be? Oh, 30 oh. seconds is always hard. Um, okay. So operation Grendel is about a very cynical military journalist who impersonates an intelligence officer in order to write the story of a galactic invasion. It's basically an exploration of the ways in, in which artificial intelligence could be used to manipulate us in the future, um, the ways um, AIs might create personalized, direct-to-consumer, targeted, individualized propaganda. Was that under 30 seconds? It was. It was a very good under 30 seconds, too. So what is it that makes your special, your novel special out of all of the things in science fiction? I'm always reluctant to say that anything about that I do is special. The, the idea of the book is that the story itself is a psyop the reader is participating in, but not in the way they think. So my goal was... Really, my goal, first of all, was to tell a compelling and entertaining story because I don't think anything else works. If you if you miss that part, nothing else works, right? Um, you know, Grendel or, or uh, Beowulf works because Grendel isn't, you know, an awesome monster. Right? And you get arms ripped out of their sockets and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I wanted to tell a compelling story, but I also wanted, I, I hope that maybe something about the story will lead readers to a place where they can see that the most powerful lies are generally the ones we aren't looking for. That's one of the things that astounded me when I was, when I was studying yellow journalism was in so many cases, the, the deception was slipped in somewhere where you just weren't looking for it. And it, it honestly made me feel kind of vulnerable and it was, that's a creepy feeling, which is a good story, a good story premise, right? You know, if you can, not that you always want to creep people out, but if people aren't sure what to expect, um, you know, that creates curiosity. And then you wonder, where are we going? Oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, could something about this be true? And I don't know if it's true, but I think the best science fiction does point to possibilities. Um, in fact, there, there's a great, uh, I love the novel, um, The Space Merchants. Uh, which it's probably influenced me in some ways um, because it's it's a little bit about commercial propaganda. And this is nothing like that, but it does ha have those kind of uh, like weird moments where um, the writers will say something and you'll go, hmm, <laughs> I, I wonder if I've bought that particular commercial propaganda lie as well. So that's what I was trying to do. That is very cool. Um Sorry, I, it's been a long day. Um, 19. 19, thank you. So which tropes is it that you think you hit on particularly awesome in Grendel? Well, 
one of them was probably accidental. Pub Publishers Weekly did a review where they pointed out that the story is actually an inversion of the embedded reporter following the action because in Operation Grendel, the protagonist, Raymond Dahl, is a military journalist who becomes the story and is followed by a team of soldiers. So I would love to take credit for that, <laughs> but I wasn't actually planning it. It just happened. And I'm glad they noticed it because I went, that is what I did, isn't it? Um, also, there's a, there's a journey trope that's, that's pretty tried and true. Um, and that, you know, mirrors the, in a way, the journey I took in Guatemala. Um, so those are probably the main one. There's, you know, it's, it's also got a little bit of a noir feel to it. So there's the, the jaded person who's trying to tell the truth, but he's also kind of an unreliable narrator. Um, so, so that unreliable narrator is probably not a trope, but it's definitely <laughs> part of the story. Okay. Now you, we talked earlier about this being a military science fiction story, but what other genre or subgenres do you think, uh, Operation Grendel fits best into? That's a great question. Um, I probably techno thriller. Um, we went over this. I, I tried to go over this with the, with the publisher. What other, what other categories does it fit in? And th those, that's what we landed on was military sci-fi techno thriller and just straight sci-fi. So I don't have a better okay. answer than that. Sorry. That's a good answer. So let's talk about the story itself now. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your main character and what makes him or her unique in the crowded field of science fiction? Yeah. Um, so Raymond Dahl is the is corporal, and he's um, he's a clickbait journalist, basically who who thinks that he's trying to tell the truth and kind of get things past his editor at the Orbson Military News Network. Um, but he seems to be surrendering to this enemy worm, WYRM, which is it's an AI that has hacked the comms bracelet that he's wearing. Um, and it's, he's taken, and that AI has taken on the identity, identity of his girlfriend. So he's an unreliable narrator, but I really wanted his unreliability to be sympathetic. Raymond Dahl is not crazy and he's not going crazy, but his psyche is being assaulted by an extremely clever artificial mind. And the only thing he has going for him is the story that he's telling as the book unfolds. Okay. So I like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I can talk for a long time about my book. I just don't want to, I mean, I don't want to like, you know, railroad this thing. No. And, and we don't want to do any spoilers. Obviously we want them yeah. to read it and get the joy out of it themselves. So yeah. were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable for you? And could you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah. Well, his girlfriend, um, I really, I, I, I got increasingly fascinated with his girlfriend because She's she's a real um, character in the story. There's a kind of very early on. There's like a sort of like a breakup scene, um, and but yet he still cares about her. And then there's the AI that's like impersonating her. So we're seeing glimpses, but we don't know what part's true and what isn't. And I I felt like even through that process, the backstory writing, the pre writing, that I got to know her in a way that made me really admire her as a person. She's a She's like a sort of like an analyst at, at an intelligence bureau, but she's low level. Nobody really pays out much attention to her, but she has these theories about the Grendels and where their weaknesses might be that Raymond discovers might actually be helpful to him. And then there's a, uh, there's his editor at Orbson, uh, major Weston, who is, uh, 
a bit of a hard-boiled um, editor, probably, who is well-versed in journalism and is basically uh, teaching him how to tell the sorts of stories that people will read that will have enough truth in them, but not too much truth. We don't want to compromise the war effort, that kind of thing. And then there's uh, there's the team that's tasked with keeping him alive. And one of them, my favorite character in that group of special forces people is is uh, Lacklos, which is the combat medic and person who is um, unexpectedly cheerful much of the time. Uh, and I, I got to really liking her, wanting her to influence him. I wanted her to be able to pull him back some. So I can't tell you whether she does or not. You'll have to read the book. Well, right, that's a good answer. As an, as I'm sure Jr. would say, as an infantryman, he's biased towards liking medics, and that explains why I'm still here. Uh, <laughs> so, um, is there anything you can tell us about the bad guys? Because obviously, there's a bad guy. Without any spoilers. Yeah. Well, the 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 bad guys are the the worms, the artificial intelligence. The they're. The Grendels themselves are also, yeah, without giving spoilers, I mean, it, it's the it's the manipulation, right? And I don't want to give away how they're doing it because it's it's a big part of the resolution of the book. But um, the because the the worm on his comms bracelet realizes that his weakness is Ivy, the question is, is Ivy really his love interest or his enemy? as the story, as he's going deeper and deeper towards um, this peace treaty that he's supposed to be working out with this other, with an ambassador from the, the Grand Alliance. Um, you know, is he being lured there to give away stuff or is he being sent there to negotiate a much needed respite? And the seemingly the person that he's most in love with is also the person that is trying to un unravel his mind i guess that's deep so i'm I'm going to avoid the evil girlfriend trope jokes um <laughs> yeah if your characters met you in a back alley how in knowing who you are how would they feel or how would you survive that i probably wouldn't survive <laughs> i would any of these characters could kill me. <laughs> I mean, except Raymond Dahl, probably he's a military journalist, but even he probably could, I'm getting older. Um, but he wouldn't, he would probably write a story about me that would, would have just enough truth in it that it would hurt, but it would be pretty malicious probably. Um, uh, it would be extremely unflattering and s sort of also true, I guess. Um, but the other ones, I don't know if they would. Um, some of them would probably, you know, know what I was trying to do, I guess. I did. I, this may, this isn't a direct answer to the question. I, I had a military journalist write me a letter that I got like a week ago after he read Operation Grendel. And it was really meaningful to me because he, he said, um, thank you for telling the truth about this. And I, and like, I haven't gotten a lot of feedback from military people. And I've been wondering, did I step on toes? Did I, you know, am I, am I, did I botch something here that was just out in my ignorance, you know, but coming from someone who is actually Raymond Dahl's job, uh, it was, it was a cool letter. Now the question is, 
could Robin William play this character when they did Good Morning Operation Grendel? <laughs> that is a great question. I don't, I don't think so. No, no. <laughs> it, you, it, this isn't really a a really laugh <laughs> laugh a minute sort of novel. Okay. All right, Doc. You get to ask the the, the important, the fun question next. Twenty five. And you got to unmute yourself. Oh, JR wants me to ask about the sausage. So <laughs> that just sounded really bad. Keep power through it. Power through it. Yeah, power through it. Okay. Um, sometimes when people write books, there's cool scenes or ideas that get cut from the final book. So in the making of the sausage of the book, what was anything left on the cutting room floor? Yes and no. That's a really interesting question because Operation Grendel, um, I wrote, well, you know, I don't want to give you all, all the making of it because it would be boring. But, but one really interesting thing that happened was after I'd written the fourth draft, uh, I wrote it fairly quickly and I revised it fairly quickly. And I, I had an agent who really liked it, but she didn't think she could necessarily sell it where sh she thought it should be sold. So she sent it to Russell Galen. And I've never met Russell Galen. Um, I don't know why he would pay attention to me or my manuscript, but he read, you know, uh, draft four of, of Operation Grendel. And he sent it to me with a, with a, um, with a letter that said, you know, I see the attraction. I think this can sell. However, it's, it's too clever without a human connection to the characters. And, you know, just blunt, but that's what I wanted. And like, really, you know, yeah, at some point you, you realize it's not about you. It's about the manuscript, right? Does the manuscript work or not? And I realized that I had left out of the manuscript, all of the pre-writing, the character work. I was so concentrating on all the thematic stuff that I had not given enough of the characters. So I went back and I rewrote the entire manuscript, added 25,000 words, which Honestly, it still is only seven. It's only it's seventy five thousand or something like that. Seventy three thousand something. Um, and I told the whole story, and I put back in the things that I knew that I was pulling from that I'd done in my pre writing. And when that happened, I knew that was the story I was trying to 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 tell, and it it actually sold very quickly when that that version sold quickly. Okay. That's always interesting to hear the behind the scenes stories. So finally, what can you tell us about the universe where this is happening? In many series, the words, uh, worlds where the story is told is as much a character as the protagonist or antagonist. So can you give us a hint of what we can expect from this expansive world you've created? Yeah, I think I've probably already mentioned the, the defining characteristic thing of it. I mean, in Operation Grendel, it's set on a kind of jungle world. Um, there, There's two cultures in conflict and one of them is just completely has you know they have no firewalls keeping um you know their ais from telling them the stories that they want to hear and the other one is much more realistic and but the problem is with a lot of technology the early adopters get the advantage right so um you may love autonomy but it it makes it harder to get things done when you're not all, I mean, the Grendels aren't a hive mind, but, but um, because they don't have as many limitations, they are harder to beat. 
So the the side that's more, you know, about freedom or whatever is losing um, because they're not adopting the technology because to do so would be to surrender their humanity. And that's kind of the the theme of the whole thing is who do we become when we when, when we let this take over? Okay, so um, you've talked about uh, a lot about the story and you definitely sold me. So I'm gonna have to go and find someone to read to me. Um, maybe I can write it in crown so I can give you a little better, um, pretend I'm a Marine or something. But uh, is Operation Grendel a part of a series? Um, is their story done? Will there be more from these characters? Where do you see this going? What's next? Well, it was, it was written as a standalone, uh, but I have uh, told the public, I've actually outlined a, another standalone novel in this universe that is tentatively called Operation Defect. And it, the idea is that it's, it's um, an assassination attempt from a Grendel perspective, seeing what the world looks like when you are completely wired to these, to these AIs. Um, you know, it right now it's still in the in that simmering stage. I I have to sit on stories usually for for like a year before I really like know what I'm doing. I'm not like they're, they're Kevin Anderson. You know, can, he just he writes a lot, and I'm not prolific that way. I have to really know what it is I'm I'm grappling with. So we'll see. I'm I'm hoping that I have uh, that I can start writing that um, maybe by the end of the year. Okay. So in every universe, there's technology, particularly in science fiction ones. But is there any technology you particularly fell in love with that you created and that you'd want to keep? Well, I mean, it's not necessarily all that original to me. The, the Grendel frigate that, that launches the attack on the United Colonial Marine Corps base and embeds this worm in, in the comms bracelet... I would love to have a Grendel frigate <laughs> if I could be in control of it. Um, I would, yeah, that would be fantastic. It's too much power for me or anybody. Probably I shouldn't be given that sort of toy, but if you gave it to me, would I take it? Yes, I would take it. I would definitely so, take it. So what other kind of tech is there? Is it, was it uh, rail guns? Was it chemical propellants, lasers? Yeah. Mag magnetic rail, actually like, um, probably not very realistic but yes um uh rifles that are that shoot um magnetic grenades magnetic rounds um there's there's not there is combat in this story uh there's also flash rifles which are um i came up with the idea because i was thinking about what what having an embedded ai would be able to do for you as a soldier and one of the things it can it would be able to do if it has that full access to all of your senses and can heighten your senses with its own sensors um, without you having to put on special equipment, it might actually make you susceptible to things. So they, the United Colonies developed something called a flash rifle that um, is outdated by the time the, the book opens, but it, it uses basically strobe lights to, um, you know, to, to partially blind Grendel soldiers when they're, um, you know, doing, doing operations, they're, they're normal. I mean, they're human beings, but, um, if you're, if your senses have been heightened, um, you're more susceptible to, to things like powerful lights in your eyes or whatever. And it just, it's just any little advantage they can find any kind of low tech, um, thing 
is something you would grab hold of, I think. So for your space travel, was it FTL or did you use jump gates? Um, there's no actual um, mentioned, it, it's, it's jump gate technology, but it's not mentioned in the story really other than the um, Grendel fleet appearing over this this world kind of unexpectedly when they're supposed to be doing peace talks and here they come. Nice. So do you have aliens in this universe? No, you're supposed to ask him if he had the bad tech, how would he abuse it? Because he was trying to be all nice and stuff. <laughs> oh. We got to get a little bit into his dark side. <laughs> but he's such a sweet, nice guy. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, no. <laughs> how I would mean, you abuse your tech? If I had a Grendel frigate, I would probably launch um, the, the worms at many of the world's governments, if not all of them, and try to find out things like, you know, where is Jimmy Hoffa's secret diary buried, stuff like that. I, I want to know, you know, like the secrets. I shouldn't, but I do. So that's, I would probably, you know, you know, maybe find a way to get some of that, you know, cool stuff in Area 51 transferred to my basement. I don't know. I'd, just see what is what's there. What could you? What could I pull I up on my on the Grendel frigate screens? You know what do we have? There. Now you can talk aliens. You have my permission. <laughs> Why? Thank you. Your weirdness. Um. So, are there aliens in this universe? There are not aliens. There is one fantastical creature. Ooh. And it makes an appearance in the book. It was. Uh, and it's based on, I do a lot of things based on mythology, obviously, I, you know, reading Beowulf and stuff. There's a creature called the Asnashi, which is a central South American mythological thing that's kind of a combination between a lizard and a bear. And it has a second mouth in its chest. It's really creepy. Uh, it's like the thing that goes bump in the night for, um, you know, Central and South American, like, like Ishiel Indians, <laughs> for instance. Again, calling back to this thing. And I, my thinking was um, the Grendels are going to have this rite of passage for kind of sorting you into what are you good at? How can we use you? And one of them is facing your darkest fear, facing the Asnashi one-on-one -on, -one on a, in a place where you don't have, you know, you're not able to rely on anything except, you know, whatever technology you have, like your, your rifle um, a knife or something and and uh, you're facing the dark thing at the center of your soul because they're quite aware of what's at the center of your soul and uh, sometimes they've put it there and so they've made um, these biological fabrications to try to play on our worst nightmares and manipulate us sort sort out the great soldiers from the not so great ones that sounds like a hell of a graduation from basic training. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one that's reason why they're winning, <laughs> I guess. Okay. So so how did you create those? Um, you, If you were going to add more aliens or more creatures other than drawing from, from mythology, would you let biology inspire you or are you going to just make something up completely new? Yeah, that, you know, I never know where where my creative well like pulls from i mean honestly uh, i feel like i need something and i invent it but i i'm never comfortable with just saying okay it's gonna look like a monkey and i know no writers do that all the time but for me it doesn't work there has to be some i always feel like i need to have a deeper connection to the thing what is it that makes me 
think this creature would be cool. And so when I was just, you know, I was trying to do some background research of the area and I came across these Nashi and I was like, that is really creepy. How can I use it? And that's really how, um, how it ended up in the book was it felt like something the Grendels would, would take advantage of. So I don't, I don't, Right now, I don't see this universe having aliens in it. It's mostly human beings um, at war with themselves. Well, we can be nasty enough to ourselves. Yeah. So so would you consider the AI-enhanced Grendel soldiers to be transhuman almost? Yes. Yeah, I would. But they're they're not to the point where they're they're not like cybernetic where they have enhancements. They have enhanced weapons and, and things, but they're it's mostly a mind thing. Um, you know, those sorts of enhancements would be really expensive. I think in, in my universe, I think they're con connecting people to an AI. I don't know if you guys have heard of Neuralink. It's super cool. I, I wrote the, I wrote the book before I heard anything from Neuralink. And um, I find it really fascinating that Elon Musk is actually, you know, working on planting like a thousand microfibers in human brains and, connecting them to smartphones and then ultimately to a, to a, a supercomputer. Nope. And nope. It's Pass not for me. Negative. Go back to getting us to Mars, dude. Go back to what you're good at. But it's a great, it's a great fascinating science fiction premise, right? It's, it is. It is. It's just but creepy. I've read enough science fiction that I know I don't want it happening to my head. Right. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Clearly, this interview is winding down, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about Operation Grendel that we didn't ask you that you wanted to tell us before we moved on? That's a great question. I should have an answer for that, but I honestly don't have an answer for that. No, I mean, I think we've covered everything. We probably went longer than we were planning on going. Nope. Right well, on I time. Say, so yes, by, by Operation Grendel. That's what I should say. That We haven't talked and, about that enough. <laughs> and you know, one good place you could buy it would be that story bundle we hinted at earlier. Hmm. That's right. It's almost like that's going to be linked in the show notes where you can get, I think there's at least 12 that I counted, um, military sci-fi books that are, you can get, I think, for about 15 bucks. Yeah, that's a fantastic so, point. That's a good. That's a good deal for you, dear listener. You can save a little bit of money, support authors, and I think sometimes they even uh, story bundle will support um, charities. We've tried to reach out for someone from the actual organization that hosts these because they do a lot of. I bought a lot of books from them, mm -hmm. um, but they just some scheduling conflicts. But we are going to work on that because it's a it's a fun concept of a way to to support authors more directly and get a bunch of good books at a good price. Yeah. And a bunch of people that you like. I've discovered a lot of good authors that I've enjoyed out of story bundles. Yeah. yeah so, and I give so, them to my mother. Nice. Do you uh, do you find them to be pretty user friendly as a website? Me? Yes. Yes. I find them to be very user friendly as a website. Okay. Yeah, me too. I like it a lot. So. Yeah. All right. So we'll link all that in the show notes, and then after you buy the, the story bundle and you say, you know what? I really like this Daniel Schwabberger guy and I want to read everything else that he wrote. We're going to ask you this question so they can do that. How can listeners or readers find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Well, uh, my website's a great place to do it. It's uh, danschwabauer.com. It's S-C-H-W-A-B-A-U-E-R.com. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Schwabauer. And those are probably the two best places. I don't really do Twitter. Yep. I, I barely go there too. So I, I feel you. Um, and all of those, dear listener, as usual, will be at the bottom of the show notes. So you can check it out. 
You can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech, and tech blades. You can follow us on the aforementioned Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. And sometimes Seska will even send you snarky replies. Again, that's blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on the Facebooks at facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast where we host all of our shenanigans and we generally goof off and are totally irrelevant um but you know we do it seriously when we are irreverent so it's all good uh you can support the show over on anchor.fm blasters tech and tech blades where you can support like a monthly pledge or you could do a one-time thing at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the uh, comments that it is for energy drinks Yes, because she needs a drink, apparently. All right, Doc, are you ready to bring this puppy home? Thank you for spending your precious time with us. For the overworked Nick Garber, the pizza-loving J.R. Handley, he really likes pineapple on it. I am Seska. This was the Blasters and Blade podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time, same place, where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, things that go boom, and serving J.R. pineapple. You're going he to loves it on his pizza. You know this, right? There's what? a special place. There's a special place in the dark corner of the underworld for you. You know what? It's all okay.